Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolich, and today's topic is the use of psychedelics as a therapeutic aid to therapy. And my guest today is Dr. Ellie Kotler. Uh, who is a consultant psychiatrist who holds an academic position at Monash University through the Alfred Psychiatric Research Centre. And he's also the medical director of Melbourne Private Hospital, the first addiction hospital in Australia. He is a member of the Australian Professional Society on Alcohol and Other Drugs. And clinically, Ellie is interested in the deep connection between trauma and addiction and works with within a neuropsychoanalytic framework. So Ellie oversees the development of a clinical program for addictions focused on trauma, particularly, particularly developmental trauma. And this has led to an interest in medication-assisted trauma therapy. And that's how this connects for Ellie with regards to psychedelics. This is a topic that I'm very interested in at the moment as I see great potential. So hopefully this is a small insight into the world of psychedelics and how they can potentially help uh, the future of therapy. Enjoy. Ellie, really appreciate you coming onto the show today. I'm so excited about this episode talking about uh, psychedelics, and I know your other interests are also uh, how psychedelics can be used in trauma and addictive behavior. So thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the interest. Before we get started, maybe you can tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you've come to this interest space. Um, well, I'm a psychiatrist. I um, and about seven years ago now I um, was in the right place at the right time and became medical director of Melbourne Private Hospital which is an addictions hospital um, and I've gone in I guess I've had a little bit of a journey in psychiatry myself I started I actually specialized in aged psychiatry which is probably the the most biologic biological of all you know the sort of areas of psychiatry um, but I kind of quickly when I actually started working, I was just interested in people. I realized like I was just really interested in people and the mind and all the craziness, you know, that it is to be human. Um, and so I just sort of went more and more into, I guess, the therapeutic side. Um, and then I started working at this hospital, this addiction hospital. And I, I very quickly, it became very quickly apparent to me that um, every single person I was seeing had significant unresolved emotional issues. You know, trauma is a big word, so I don't necessarily 
like using that because it means different things to different people. So I'm, uh, I'm using the term unresolved emotional issues because that's exactly what I think they are. Um, so every single person had these issues um, and every single, and it was my, you know, I guess in my own little minds, my own opinion, it was, it was clearly those unresolved emotional issues that were directly leading to their um, continued relapses and uses of, of, of addictions. And I really just wanted to understand that. And so I guess I've spent the last um, seven years just diving into that and really trying to understand why that is and how that works. Um, which also, that, that is why I was attracted to psychedelics. I actually first, the, the first, um, I haven't had my own experience with psychedelics, but the first experience I had seeing how psychedelics work uh, was I watched, someone invited me to watch a documentary called Trip of Compassion, which is um, a documentary about people having uh, psychedelic assisted therapy, MDMA assisted therapy for trauma. Um, and I just, what I saw in that documentary was, um, you know, people working through, like I've done, I do long-term therapy with people and like I've, I think I've helped, I like to think I've helped people overcome trauma and heal from trauma, but it's probably taken about five years of weekly therapy. Um, and I saw people doing this documentary, you know, in a month, what took me five years. And so I was like, oh, well that, you know, that looks good. So, um, and, and that's why I got involved um, psychedelics and I'm on now I'm on the board of Mind Medicine Australia because, you know, they're, I guess, the, for me, they were the, um, the organisation in Australia pushing, you know, for these medications to be available. So, yeah, that's kind of a little snapshot of how I arrived where I am today. Yeah, lovely, lovely. Thank you as well for talking about you know trauma using those words those unresolved emotional issues or it's almost like an unwanted experience of thoughts and feelings that you know are, uh, are something that we don't like having i think that explains it so much more than the word trauma trauma's always got a, a clinical stigma attached to it and, and and almost is very sticky at that point rather than explaining what it is because in so many ways we all have adverse experiences in our lives that we don't want um, and I'm certainly not suggesting that they are all comparable and the same uh, but we're still a human interacting with these feelings thoughts uh, you know, past memories experiences and so on and I think it's a really nice way to, to describe it so thank you yeah no, I think that and I agree with you that they're not all comparable but at the same time I do see them on the same spectrum you know, like I think that there are some experiences that we have as humans that we can integrate and there are some experiences that we can't. And those experiences that we can't integrate can range from, um, you know, less devastating to much more devastating. But I think the effects are uh, qualitatively the same, but quantitatively they can obviously be very, there's a very significant range in the depth of the pain and the fear that is unintegrated, but I think that all these events that we can't integrate um, are on the same spectrum of uh, quality, even mm. though quantitatively they can be extremely varied. Ellie, let me ask you about that, that documentary. You spoke about in your work, it, it, it could take you know multiple years to assist someone in integrating 
uh, you know, resolving, coming to terms with, with uh, you know, what's occurred in their life. And in this documentary, Trip of Compassion, you saw, a, you know, a rapid shift for people or a, or a quicker integration. Can you talk us a little bit through, you know, maybe that documentary, but also the research that you've done um, and, and seen, read and, and been part of through, through you know, Mind, uh, uh, Mind Medicine Australia? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess it's tricky because I think it depends on your frame of reference, you know, um, how you understand these um, medications to work. But for me, my, you know, my reference, I was like kind of, my therapy took a like a psychodynamic um, trajectory and so I saw things through kind of psychoanalytic theory. And so for me, helping people through trauma was about um, using the relationship I have with them in the room to help them work through the, the ways that their mind has defended them from the trauma. Um, and then once sort of once we can identify the defences to sort of see what's underneath. And inevitably, it's some emotional overwhelm, you know, it's some overwhelming emotional experience, some type of pain or fear or, you know, some awful, un, you know, some awful emotional experience that can't be integrated. Um, and so that takes, you know, I see people usually once a week or, you know, at the most twice a week, and, you know, to, to, to get the trust with someone and to build the relationship with someone um, and to help them learn to trust themselves enough to, to go into their painful emotions and the overwhelming experiences, you know, that, that takes a long time, I think. You know, I don't think that can be done uh, quickly. Uh, well, at least not until I saw psychedelics operating. But, um, uh, yeah, like to me, that, that's just going to take a long time. You know, there's, there's no way around that. Um, and there's something about the, you know, and, and so, you know, that's about sort of peeling back the layers of the, I guess, of the psyche and the defences and, um, or protectors or whatever, you know, there are different names for these types of things, uh, these parts of the, the mind that protect us, but also harm us, like addictions, I think that's exactly what addictions are. Um, and... Psychedelics seem to allow, particularly MDMA, seems to allow people, it gives people a sense of trust. Um, and I think that allows people to be contained um, in the moment. Um, people suggest that that's things like oxytocin, which is, you know, a chemical related to attachment, you know, parent-child bonding and attachment. And there's obviously something very safe about that. I mean, that is, I think, part of the therapeutic relationship that, are, that can build with, you know, a therapist and their client or patient over, you know, a significant period of time. Um, but it seems to happen almost instant, instantaneously with psychedelics, which, which seems to allow people to go into their trauma. So it's almost, so in my language, I understand, as I understand it, it's like the defenses just melt away. Um, so, so the protectors or the, 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 the defense mechanisms that have held um, the trauma, you know, sort of unconscious or semi-conscious or forgotten or um, it sort of allows it up. The, I think it's the safety and the trust that people feel allows the trauma up to actually be reprocessed and re-understood um, because inevitably, 
you know, there's something about the trauma that hasn't been understood properly or integrated properly, or, you know, some type of um, emotional displacement, or, you know, like there's guilt where there shouldn't be, or there's unresolved anger, or there's, you know, there's a fear that hasn't been able to be overcome. You know, there's anger directed towards the self instead of the person who harmed me, you know, so I hate myself. And so it's, it's you know, and it's, you know, so for example, there's a beautiful scene in that documentary where there's a, a man that was sexually abused by his father. Um, and in his third session of MDMA-assisted therapy, I think it was his third session, he's just staring, him, staring at himself in the mirror and he starts to cry and he's like, you know, I can see you, I can see you. And he starts to smile and, you know, it's as if he's seeing himself again for the first time and sort of feeling some self-love again for the first time, you know, and that would take, I don't think I'm a terrible therapist, but that would take me a long time, you know, with someone to get to a point where they're really feeling self-love and, you know, the anger is no longer directed at themselves. You know, that to me takes a long time. Um, and to see that happening after like, you know, on the third session, it's just like, that just blew my mind. It's like, and it was genuine, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a cognitive, like, oh yeah, I'm a good person. It was a really, it was a real lived experience and felt experience of being, you know, of him seeing himself again and, and loving himself. Um, so, yeah, you know, I know that's probably a little bit vague, but, um, you know, and, and we can talk about, you know, there's, there's, you know, we can talk about the fancy neuroscience and the brain scans and, you know, I'm happy to talk about that and the receptors and, um, you know, I'm very happy to talk about that stuff, but that's, you know, that, that's how I connected with how psychedelics work, I guess, on a personal level. So in, in, in some sense, what the, whether it's MDMA or psilocybin or, or, or various other ones that are used, what they do is, uh, take away some of those defences, the, 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 whether it's the fears, the anxieties, whether it's the uh, potentially the um, self-deprecating aspect to put all that aside and actually meet that experience again in a different way. Is that, is that what it's saying? So it's, it changes your relationship with whether it's the past or the present, um, uh, it, it opens your mind or, or opens you up a little bit more to experience that again. Um, I keep coming back to the word opens, um, maybe because I've sort of read a little bit about it in terms of uh, my understanding is uh, uh, people's openness to experience, you know, increases after um, this type of medicine uh, uh, and that might have a an affect on 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 the therapy that that we are more open minded, uh, uh, and obviously there's probably a lot of prep work that goes in before that as well. But is there an openness to experience that occurs with with these medications? Is that what you mean by MDMA provides trust? That it allows you to open up closer to trust? Yeah, I mean, you what you're suggesting fits in with. The most coherent theory that we have so far about how psychedelics work, which is the rebus, um, it's it was written by a, a professor of neuroscience and a psychiatrist, Carl Friston and Robert Carhart Harris. There was a paper written called "Rebus and the Anarchic Brain." If people want to look that up, which is relaxed belief under psychedelics, rebus, and the anarchic brain. And I mean, there's a lot to talk about the theory, but 
just on a superficial level, um, I mean, Carl Friston, I mean, Carl Friston is the most, he's officially the most influential neuroscientist of our day, um, based on um, how many times his work has been cited. Um, and so he has a he, he has a theory called the free energy theory, which is about how it's a global it's it's basically a theory of how the brain works on a global sort of level. Um, it's also a theory about how all living organisms function. But the and and basically the the idea is which fits in very nicely with what clinicians know, which is that you know no no one it's it's a it's a computational neuroscientific theory. So it's, it's maths. So he's, I mean, I think he's probably the smartest person I've ever met in my life. I haven't met him, but I've spoken to him. Um, but he, he, he's used, he's somehow, I don't understand it by the way, the maths, but he somehow used mathematics to, to create a theory of, of how the brain works, which um, fits remarkably well with clinical experience. And basically the, the idea is that, brains function um, by trying to reduce this quantity called free energy. And what that basically means is brains function by reducing um, prediction error. Stick with me here. It's not, it sounds complicated, but it's not that complicated. So in other words, we have internal working, our minds have internal working models of the world. And so that's, that's a model that my mind has. Then there's incoming information from the sensorium. So what things that I sense, perceive, like for example, a relationship, I can perceive the relationship, the interaction at the moment. And I have an internal working models model of re what relationships should look like. Um, and the difference between my internal working model, what I already know about relationships and the income, what, I, what the incoming information about the relationship is, the brain will work to decrease the difference between those two sets of information. So what I already know and what's happening at the moment and how the brain often works, and we know this as therapists, is that the brain will distort the incoming information to fit with what it already knows about the world. And so this is, he's mapped this out in mathematics and he's also mapped it out anatomically in the brain. And what it basically says, to cut a long story short, is we see what we already know. We see... You know, we don't see reality, humans. We see what we expect to see. Um, and that's true on all levels. It's not only true in relationships, but it's just true in general. You know, it's true in with vision or hearing, and it's also true in complex things like relationships. And so what... And we see that psychology knows this and psychiatry knows this immensely. There's confirmation bias. There's exactly. all, sorts of, all sorts of, you know optimism biases, you know, 80% of the people think that they are better than an average driver, you know, all this sort of stuff that... that and everyone's a better than average therapist. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, 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 um, you know, the ego gets involved or, as you say, our internal world, we just keep confirming it or at least there's a bias towards it. My apologies. Absolutely. For <clears throat> you're going somewhere. No, no, no. It's, that's absolutely exactly. And we do know this. I mean, we, we all know this. It's just he's mapped it out mathematically and anatomically. Um, and so what, what, what psychedelics, and, and so that's a top down, he calls it, it's from the cortex. The cortex has these um, very generic models of the world, you know, internal working models, object relations, whatever, you, you know, whatever words we use to 
describe these things. Um, and, and the cortex basically dampens down or sends signals down to the information that's coming up to it from the, from the world. And it basically clamps down on the information coming in and controls it um, to decrease the difference, to decrease the free energy or the prediction error. It decreases the difference between what's coming in and what I already know about the world. So what psychedelics appear to do is switch off you know, psychedelics work to work through 5-HT2A, or they seem to work through 5-HT2A receptors, serotonin receptors, that are densely um, concentrated in the cortex. And so what, what psychedelics, the theory is, it's the most coherent theory of psychedelics we have at the moment. The theory is that that control, those preconceived notions we have about the world are switched off. And all of a sudden, you can just see things as they are. You don't have to be, so, so your, your experience of your, for example, of yourself, you know, our self is kind of an object. We see ourselves as an object as well. You know, I can hate myself. I can love myself. And so the way I see myself can also be reformulated. So I don't have to be stuck. And that's when you said open. I think, you know, we literally become open. So we're no longer stuck in our old patterns. Um, and, and I think... I might just add in here one important point is how we understand pathology in mental health. I personally don't particularly like our current categorical models of um, mental illness. They definitely have uses, but I think I don't like them in particularly. I think, you know, pathology much more presents itself in, in patterns, in patterns of thinking, feeling, and, and, and behaviours. I mean, addiction or a prime example, but, but even depression, you know, thoughts of self-loathing and, you know, I'm terrible. And, um, and, and so if you view, you, you, so, so psychedelics really allow us to change those patterns. Um, we don't have to be stuck in the same patterns anymore. I don't have to hate myself anymore. No, I don't have to be a perfectionist anymore. I don't have to worry about my body image all the time anymore you know I can see things differently mm. it's 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 interesting because I know that we've all had these moments in life where our internal world or what we know has been shockingly challenged and we change our mind very rapidly with for example new evidence um, now a small little example might be and I'm, I can only assume this to be right. I don't know if it is or, or not, but um, uh, there's been some serious allegations around Michael Jackson and um, uh, his actions towards young persons. Um, that shocking revelation, even though prior to that, I felt really you know, a great admiration and love towards Michael Jackson, uh, since those allegations and, and um, you know, those reports, I, I find it, well, I don't find it difficult to listen to his music. I don't listen to his music anymore. I'm repulsed by it. So there's this huge sort of um, shift in my internal world, you know, what I believe, and, and it affects, you know, something so visceral like music, which is so visceral. In some sense, what I'm hearing you describe is that that openness uh, uh, opens to lots of things and, in therapy, we can guide that to 
for example, say you're stuck on a relationship with a parent or, you know, you're stuck in self-loathing or maybe you're stuck with um, the realisation that you have a terminal illness and, you know, you've been advised you've got only several years to live, that we can guide in therapy um, uh, areas to re-examine, re-explore or see the world again, um, you know, see, see a different viewpoint. Is that kind of yeah i i think that's actually and i think it's a great the 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 the, um, experience that you said is actually great comparison because you know i think we can we can change easily when things don't when we're not emotionally biased towards something so you know i can i can now not like michael jackson because it doesn't you know there's no significant personal emotional bias to not liking him I mean, if I loved his music, I might try and convince myself that it's not that bad. But, you know, but, but when it comes to our, the, you know, often beliefs about ourselves or beliefs about the world that, you know, come from our experiences, my impression is we have very strong emotional biases. That's why, you know, that's why you can't think your, your way out of emotional difficulties. You can't think your way out of depression or anxiety or addictions because there's a very strong emotional bias holding something in place. Um, much so more entangled. Sorry. Much more entangled when it when it relates to you. Yeah, and and yeah, and I, like I feel like the, the, there's an emo, you know, to me the way I understand it is there, there's an emotional, but there's the strong emotional forces in my brain and mind holding that in place. And so while some things will be able to change quite quickly, the things, particularly those you know, based in those awful experiences that we can have in life, they get stuck. And so just like with your example, you could change, you know, I guess, yeah, that, that psychedelics hopefully allow people to um, work towards changing these fundamental things like your example, but about myself and, mm. uh, and the world. Yeah. To, to me, it's, you know, it's always so hard to talk about because I'm trying to understand something that I haven't tried. Um, and <laughs> to, to me, it seems like, and my apologies, because this might be a little bit lay persons, but it almost feels like in my therapy, I know that things that stick the most are when they are most viscerally experienced. And so we know this when, for example, our clients that cry in the room um, and they... So I suppose, step towards their fears that we can address those and actually try and reconcile them in those moments. Uh, it seems to me that what this medicine provides is an opportunity uh, to kind of do something like seeing is believing. You know, when I feel it, you know, in, in the world of psychology, you know, the emotion is seeing it, you know, when I can reconcile that because I'm so open once, I can kind of redo that, you know, like I, I've set a new pattern, a new framework together and, and these chemicals allow us, these, this medicine allows us to actually do that in a way that we couldn't before. And at least at that point when we come out of the experience, we have choice. I can, I can choose to see it as I used to, or I can choose to see it as I've just seen it. Um, uh, maybe there's more choice, but I think that that visceral, uh, emotional way of looking at it, or for example, surrendering, opening up to it, uh, uh, 
becomes a very sticky substance psychologically. Um, it, it feels to me like, you know, it opens that gateway to, to, um, to removing fear and just looking at it. And, and, you know, it's kind of like children, you know, if, you, if they can step past the fear, they might say that a cockroach isn't actually scary. And you could probably say that for lots of adults, right? Yeah, and, and I think you're spot on. And um, I'm really glad you brought up that point about feeling it. And, you know, in, in our, you know, I think this is a point that's not focused on enough in, in modern sort of contemporary models, you know, but a, a lot of ancient cultures understood this idea of, you know, the connection between head and heart. Um, and for some reason... Um, I mean, I think there are reasons, but anyway, but, but for, you know, our society is not into heart. It's just not. Um, and I agree with you that there's something extremely healing. It, healing occurs when the head and the heart are connected in a healthy way. I mean, um, and there is something about, there's a very interesting connection between feeling something and knowing something um, in, in, a, in, in a, you know, sort of, sense of that this is my truth you know that if i can feel it and until i felt it it doesn't i don't think it changes people until it's felt and and that is exactly in one way that's 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 a really nice way of understanding how um or at least part of how psychedelics work is they they do allow people access uh into their emotional world and their body um, and I, again, I think that's probably got to do with feeling safe. You, you know, people feel safe and, and contained. And there is, yeah, and I think that's one necessary part of healing, that the head has to connect to the heart. Um, and, and I've read, you know, for example, there's, there was a psych, well, he's still alive. Stan Groff is a psychiatrist that used LSD a lot in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I've heard him speak and... Um, you know, people with alexithymia, you know, people that are just not connected to, to their bodies and their emotions and don't understand their emotions. And to me, again, that's a result of whatever you want to call it, trauma, unresolved emotional issues, you know, that the mind just cuts off the, the feelings, you know, particularly for those uh, particularly for those types of people struggling with, with connecting to their feelings, these uh, medications are supposed to be, um, you know, really helpful because they do open them, open, open up the, the channels, you know, the, into the body and the, and the emotions. What's some of the research out there that um, stands out for you in terms of the uh, merit of using psychedelics as an aid for therapy? So, so there's a couple, I just might say a couple of things before um, talking about the research, because I think there are a couple of important things to keep in mind about the research. First, firstly, um, like I worked in Alzheimer's disease for many years, and I was involved in research with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the people funding the research were pharma companies. And they would literally spend half a billion to a billion dollars, um, mark, you know, um, trialing a medication to get out onto market. Like that's literally what it would take. That, that's the type of money. Um, psychedelics are different because uh, they can't be patented. 
I mean, new ones can be, but the, you know, obviously, you know, like Silas Ivan is from mushrooms. You can go out and pick it. You can't patent that. You can't patent MDMA. It's gone out of patent. It was made in 1912, um, which means that there was, you know, big pharma companies. It's not a traditional model where, where someone owns the, owns the compound and they're going to invest half a billion dollars or a billion dollars to getting it onto market because they'll make all the money back and more when it gets onto the market. So there is no pharma company like that investing in psychedelics. And I think that's important to understand because there are two common criticisms uh, with psychedelic research, and I think they're fair criticisms. It just needs to be taken in the context. One criticism is that the um, research studies are small sample sizes. And that's true. And that is a valid criticism. But it also, I think, needs to be understood that there is a reason for that, which is, you know, for example, MAPS in America, um, who have done some of the biggest studies, it's all charity money. You know, it's all, it's all donations. Um, so the research in general has an issue that, in general, a lot of the studies are small sample sizes and not randomized controlled trials. And that's a fair criticism, but it also needs to be understood that there's a reason for that. Another issue is it's very hard to get a placebo for psychedelics. Um, and that's pretty obvious if you think for a moment about why that is. It's because, you know, you know if you've had a psychedelic and the people, the therapists sitting with you when you're having the psychedelic, they also know because it's such a profound experience and it goes for hours. And so there's, there are issues with blinding in these studies, which also mean that, you know, if you... Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be uh, uh, a positive in, in terms of if you can't find a placebo that acts... I mean, really, our current model is medications often work a little bit more than a placebo, at least in some psychiatric medications, uh, probably not so much for other, um, you know, uh, medications. But, you know, there, there's some questions around some psychiatric medications about how, how much better they work than placebo. And there's plenty of research that, you know, in, it shows that often it doesn't work better than placebo. Um, okay. uh, but in this, in this instance, yeah. isn't, it, isn't it advantageous to say, well, we did give them a placebo, it was a sugar cube, um, and they reported no um, uh, openness and change in their relationship towards, you know, their trauma, um, because we still gave them placebo. The fact that it didn't work, um, well, that, that, that says something because, you know, it, it says that this compound, psilocybin or MDMA or whatever it might be, actually has an incredible um, affect uh, that, that can't be replicated um, by the mind. Yeah, and I think... Well, not easily. Uh, <clears throat> our society, for better or for worse, and it's interesting, you know, it's a big discussion, I think. Evidence, you know, evidence-based medicine, particularly mental health, I think it's, it's a big discussion that, you know, I, I have a lot of... <laughs> I love a lot of thoughts on, but um, I want to hear those thoughts. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm happy to share a few of them. <laughs> but yeah, but 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 the traditional, you know, it just the traditional gold standard for any medication or any therapeutic intervention is a randomized controlled double blind study. Sure. Um, 
And in mental health, I think that's for better and for worse, as we can discuss. Um, and yeah, and, and so it just, so the idea is, and the criticism is that you can't really do, it's hard to do blinded studies with psychedelics, which means that the evidence you're getting from the studies is not gold standard. And, you know, and that's just a fact. Okay. So like, you know, scientifically, it's not gold standard. Um, to me, what it says is it, it challenges the paradigm because we, you know, we currently have a medication that's, you know, alters the mind so much that, okay, you can't, you just, it's very hard to get a placebo controlled. So that to me throws a challenge to the science. It also, you know, you can say that a challenge, it's a challenge to the medication because you can't, you know, you don't have gold standard evidence, but you could also say, well, it's a challenge to the scientific paradigms we have that in this case, we can't, you know, maybe we can't get gold standard evidence. So then what do you do? You know, so, you know, maybe we have to be flexible. That, 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 that surprises me because I thought, I, I thought scientific methodology is, is just that. If you follow it and you actually do a proper randomised controlled, double blind, uh, they may guess that this person has received it and that person hasn't. Uh, and they might guess really well because it might be clearly obvious um, to them. But that doesn't mean that the methodology wasn't actually followed by the T. Like, for example, if I come in here and I, you know, uh, give two rows, two rows of medications and then I leave the room and then you walk in and you grab one from A and grab one from B and you administer them out, you didn't know which ones I've put out. So we're both, you know, you're blind, I'm blind. <clears throat> um, you know, uh, the, the, the patient's obviously blind. So we've followed all the things that we need to do. Um, we then just go out and record and, uh, you know, there might be people out there who genuinely still feel some psychedelic effects from sugar cubes, right, you know, because they really want it to work, right? Uh, I, I imagine that probably would happen for some Um uh, you know, put, you know the desire for it, for, for it to happen. You know, our, our brains can do all sorts of weird and wonderful things, but I think that's testament to that something works phenomenally well, and that scientific methodology is still being followed. But maybe I'm missing the point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, maybe I'll just be. So, so what they do with this? You know, like when I worked in Alzheimer's disease trials, they were double blinded, and I had no. I literally had no idea who was getting the medication or not. And, and that's obviously because the medication was not so good. In this case, in this case, you know, when they, if you do questionnaires of participants and um, investigators, you know, more likely than not, people will guess who was on the psychedelic and who wasn't. Sure. And so, 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 the, so the scientific, so they follow the methodology and then you come back at the end and say, well, it wasn't actually double-blinded because people know. But as I think, as we're both kind of suggesting, I guess, you know, and I'm not a researcher, you'd need a researcher to come on and, you know, speak about, you know, the issues around that in more detail. But, sure. you know, for me, all that says for me is that these medications are very powerful and maybe they can't be double-blinded and we just have to kind of live with that because that's how it is, which, uh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, evidence, I don't, uh, I always get, whenever people... I mean, I'll take addictions, take evidence base for addictions. Um, 
Now, the current government guidelines for addiction suggest CBT and motivational interviewing. Sure. Um, so that's the, you know, if I was following the evidence base for addictions, I would treat all my patients with CBT motivational interviewing. I don't use either of those techniques. I don't, I don't think they work very well at all. Um, and in fact, if you look at the evidence base for CBT, for addictions, um, the biggest meta-analysis that came out in 2019 clearly shows, very clearly shows, that CBT works a little bit better than doing nothing and it's the same effect as someone just talking, if you just talk to people, basically. So in other words, you know, the thing about evidence is tricky because it depends what the control group is. If, the, if CBT is, is done in addictions for, if CBT is studying addictions and it's compared to nothing, um, you know, like no intervention, like wait list or something, then it has an, an effect size. It has a reasonable effect size. But as soon as you compare it to any other intervention, the effect size drops away. And so if you talk about evidence base for addictions, CBT has by far the biggest evidence based. It's the evidence-based therapy, but the evidence is that it doesn't work very well. And, but, but it's still touted as, you know, it's still in all the guidelines. So, you know, uh, I've become very disillusioned, I guess, with evidence-based treatments for mental health because it's my personal experience and I recommend other people do the same. My experience is if I, when I actually look at the studies and the effect sizes and, and, and it ends up the, people, the, the, the treatments we give aren't very effective at all. Um, mm -hmm. not, but, uh, just, just to reinforce, it is, it's, better than, it's better than nothing. Like if you're in treatment, stay in treatment. It's better than nothing. But it's not, you know, the, the results that we get from these interventions are not great. Like, you know, they're not fantastic. It's definitely more effective than nothing. Um, but, you know, we, we can do better. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, that's what I suppose this whole conversation is about, is, is looking at uh, does chemically-assisted, medication-assisted therapy improve its uh, efficacy? Um, and, you know, my understanding is clearly um, there, there, there is some... Whether we use the word evidence or you know, there's some strong suggestions that that is the case. I'm 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 aware of a piece of research that was that looked at um, people who were um, in late stages of life um, and yeah. obviously um, you know finding that very upsetting um, and who were uh, provided with. Um, uh, I suppose a psychedelic experience that was assisted, you know, with therapy, and we had, had lots of prep time beforehand in terms of what people are wanting to achieve out of that. Um, and and I think the results from 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 memory were that a lot of people found that uh, post intervention they felt a lot um, more at peace with dying, that they were a lot more accepting of death, and they had less turmoil in their last um, you know period of life from uh, my understanding was a you know a, a single intervention but you know, I might be getting that wrong um, are you aware of that at all yeah 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 there's there's good evidence for um and we can call it evidence because it is even though you know that it may have some issues you know the best evidence yeah so end of life 
Um, and that's transdiagnostic, which I think is, is good because I do think psychedelics work in a transdiagnostic way. And I think that's just because our diagnostic systems are flawed. But um, yeah, so that was end of life, you know, people with adjustment disorders or depression or generalized anxiety disorders. And, um, and it was, yeah, I'm pretty, it was one or two sessions. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, people, uh, you know, there's, there's a saying in the, uh, I'm not that entrenched in the psychedelic um, world, but there's a saying, you know, if, if you die before you die, you'll, oh, I can't remember it. There'll be people out there that remember it. Anyway, it, the idea is that people face their death, you know, so, something about the experience allows them to face death. Um, and something about the experience of feeling, you know, something we, have, we haven't spoken about, but the spiritual type experiences, the, the experiences of feeling very connected to other people, to nature, to the world, um, something about that seems to um, remove a significant amount of that existential fear that people have, that we all have, I have, of, of death, uh, you know, whether it's conscious or not. Um, so there, there is good evidence for that. There's also very good evidence for PTSD and major depression. Um, PTSD, it's important to note that it's not just, um, you know, single event PTSD or like veteran PTSD. It's also complex PTSD from, you know, things like childhood sexual abuse. Um, so there's good evidence for that. There's good evidence for major depressive disorder. Um, we, which is why, you know, which is why it will happen. You know, psychedelics will, I have no doubt in my mind that they will get, even though there are limitations with the sample sizes and because, you know, no one's spending half a billion dollars to get it, to get them through. And um, I have no doubt that they will come onto the, you know, they will be part of our treatments within years. I think it's not, I don't think it will, you know, I think it will, it's, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, because the results are so, are so positive. Um, and so many people, you know, and maps were very clever. They, they maps chose, maps didn't have a lot of money. This is the, in, in America run by Rick Doblin. They didn't have a lot of money and they chose PTSD because they knew that the American public would support uh, treatment for veterans with PTSD. And that's exactly what's happened um, because, because they chose PTSD there's a lot of support, you know, now and people really pushing to get it through for PTSD. Um, even though I suspect it will work for everything that we consider mental illness, um, it's, it's so far for PTSD and major depression mainly because that's been what's studied. And again, there are limited funds. So you got to go for the big ticket items first. What, why do you feel so confident about that? About what? Which that it bit? will work. That it will work for for, you know, like, like globally. It, it has, you know. Oh well, you know, psychological. I guess it's um, it's because I guess it's because how I understand mental illness. I, I've never connected. Well, it's not. I've never connected. You know. Yeah. Sorry. Just to take a step back. You know, our current diagnostic categories, they're not valid, you know, and that's a fact, you know, DSM until the most recent DSM, they said that in the introduction, I think they took it out for the most recent one, maybe they don't like to admit it anymore. But you know, what is a major depressive disorder? It's just a description. It's purely descriptive. It doesn't explain anything. It's not, it's not like, 
It's not like, you know, in medicine in general, there are two types of diagnoses. There are diagnoses which are explanations and there are diagnoses which are descriptions. So appendicitis is a diagnosis that explains your symptoms. So I have a painful abdomen and a fever and I'm vomiting. Someone can diagnose you with appendicitis. Appendicitis explains why you have those symptoms. Then there are some diagnoses like chronic fatigue syndrome, which are just descriptions. You know, you're tired all the time and et cetera. Um, psychiatric diagnoses, maybe apart from the dementias, let's say, and maybe delirium, um, and, and interestingly, PTSD. But anyway, psychiatric diagnosis in general, take major depression, for example. It's not an explanation. It's just a description. Um, and, and the description is, I mean, that's what it is. It's just a description. You know, in other words, to say I'm sad because I'm depressed doesn't make sense because all depression is is a description of someone that's sad. You know, to say I'm, I can't concentrate because I've got ADHD doesn't, it's like a circle. It's, mm -hmm. it's like I'm round because I'm a circle. Yeah. Um, so our current diagnostic categories don't, um, you know, they're not, they're, they're just descriptions. And I think that they, they put box, they try and put boxes around something which in its nature is not in a box. So I don't, you know, major depressive disorder, when you try and treat major, when I treat someone's symptom, so if I, if someone comes into me with major depression and I try and treat the symptoms of the depression, I'm buying into a sense that this diagnosis is valid because I'm just treating the symptoms, but the symptoms are just symptoms. Like who knows why they're there? Like no one, that's not... Mm. So if I treat major depression by treating the symptoms of major depression, uh, what I'm basically saying is that I think this is a valid diagnosis and I'm going to treat it according to the symptoms which are in the diagnosis. But I've never, under, uh, you know, I don't think major depression is a thing. It's just, it's, it's a, I mean, people, people suffer in the world, but I don't think major depressive disorder is a valid disease it's just it's just a few it's just a few aspects it's a few descriptive aspects of people suffering how people suffer but it's not the whole picture in fact it's a small slice of the picture for me so for me i've always been like more trans diagnostic in my approach i've always been like okay let's look what's going on for you underneath okay it's true you may not be able to um you know, you may feel sad, but let's work out what that sadness is. You know, why are you sad? What is it? Is it loneliness? Is it guilt? You know, why is it stuck there? Is it related to something? So my approach to mental illness is always has always been to go underneath the, the label. And psychedelics work at that level. They work at the level underneath. And so that's why I'm confident that they'll work for everything that we consider mental illness, because they work, they work transdiagnostically. They work um underneath the superficial categories that we have chosen to categorize mental illness as i hope that made some sense <laughs> no, absolutely i think um i mean there are great limitations with it there sam and i think we all we all know that because you know one person could present to five different psychiatrists or psychologists and you know uh, when they leave the room probably all the psychologists and psychiatrists would be in agreement with what the story was of the person what happened in their life, um, you know, what, what occurred when they started feeling something and so on. 
when we start asking them what's the diagnosis, there'll be variation. And so if there's variation in what the diagnosis is, uh, but the story remains the same, we've got to have some question marks around it. And I think the second point is also, you know, something like, you know, major depressive disorder. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a bunch of symptoms um, that we put together and we say it's there for a condition. But uh, when we exclude something like grief and we say, well, you don't have major depressive disorder if you've got grief, if someone's died, because that better explains why you're feeling that way. Um, well, then we could ask, well, why does not breaking up with your wife um, uh, also not better explain your condition or why does not having to work you know, nine to five, five days a week, not better explain your situation? Um, you know, if, if, if we allow for grief to explain it away, uh, why, why don't we allow for work to explain it away? So I think that, 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 that there's some question marks. And what you're saying is that transdiagnostic space allows us to go out and, and, and not look at symptoms, um, uh, but rather try and understand, um, I suppose, a deeper level of the psyche um, uh, by not doing symptom reduction or, or examining the symptoms, but looking at what's more at the root of the experience, um, which is, you know, I think, I think we're probably in both in agreement. It's, it's our relationship to those things. Um, and psychedelics allow us to re-examine our relationship with, with the world. Yeah, and, and I do want to just emphasise one point. Um, and I'll use addictions as an example. And, you know, this is a whole conversation which we probably don't have time for. But um, I think what people, I think there's a mistake that we make in our society, so some people at least, in that because there's been some brain scans and some neurochemistry understood, we, we think we, we can be led to think or we can think, and I think it's a mistake, that psychiatric diagnoses something like addictions is a valid disease entity because somewhere along the line, someone showed a brain scan of some correlations. And I think there's an assumption that people make that they, they, these things are valid biological entities, that, you know, major depression is a valid biological entity. Um, and if you are listening and you believe that, I would just encourage you to actually look into the science yourself. The, the last article I read on the, you know, the pathology of major depression, there were at least 21 neurotransmitters involved. There were inflammatory changes. Um, there were new neuromodulatory changes. There were neuroplastic changes. So there may be some neural correlates, but we don't understand them very well at all. Um, and in something like addictions, which I've done a lot of research into, you know, more than other... Um, psychiatric conditions. Um, there is, I think, a fallacy going around that I've heard many times, um, you know, that addiction is a brain, you know, it's been kind of proven that addiction is a brain disease and it's related to dopamine, which is a reward chemical, and that's, and it's inherited. And there are so many false things about that narrative of addictions that it would probably take, you know, it would take a while to discuss them all. Um, but it's just not true. And, and I'm happy to be challenged. You know, I'm happy people can contact me and challenge me on that. that that's totally fine. I'm, 
comfortable with my understanding of, of, of addictions. Um, and so, so I think part of the, I think our society has some type of, we've bought into this idea that because someone had a brain scan somewhere and, and there are some, there's something like dopamine involved, that means it's a medical disease and that means it's a valid disease entity. Um, and I think, you know, while that might help be helpful with stigma or something, I don't think it's helpful because it's not the truth. And so mm. it ends up in, inevitably there are issues with it, um, such as not looking at the trauma behind addictions. Um, if you just see it as a brain disease, well, then it's just a brain disease. You don't have to worry about, you know, the person's childhood and development. I think it's a you know, re re really good point. I think, you know, uh, the, the one thing that's been drummed into hopefully all psychologists and, and I'm assuming uh, likewise for you, you guys medically trained is uh, correlation does not equal causation. Otherwise, you know, it's the cricket crickets making noise that um, uh, uh, brings the moon into the into the night sky um, because they're happening at the same time you know we, well, that's we, exactly we, correct all sorts of weird um, and wonderful things mathematically to you know show evidence for when in actual fact it's it, it's just fancy statistical um you know analyses well that's exactly correct and so there are two there, there are a few issues one is that we don't actually know the correlations it's a fantasy you know if anyone is out there and they think that we know the correlations of major depression or addictions that's a fantasy. We don't. There are some theories about dopamine and, you know, and I'm happy to talk about that in length, but I won't at the moment. But I, I, I gen it is a fantasy to, to believe that we understood the correlations. But let's say even if we did, and maybe in 500 years we will know the correlations of things like addictions, it still doesn't mean it's a brain disease because if, as many people have pointed out, our experience changes our brains. So... How do you know that disease didn't arise as something that as a learning coping mechanism over your life? And of course, there are brain changes, but there are, you know, taxi drivers have brain changes. So, yeah, like, you know, so even if we did know the correlations, which we don't, but even if we did, it still doesn't mean it's a disease. Addictions could equally, and, and there's a guy called Mark Lewis who wrote a book called The Biology of Desire. His, his theory about addiction is that it's a learnt behaviour. You can't call it a disease because it's a learnt behaviour. Um, and I would, to a certain extent, agree with that. I would just add that it's a learnt behaviour to deal with unresolved emotional issues. Um, and so, you know, you can call it a disease if you want, but there's nothing to prove that it's a biological disease. So, yeah, just sorry. Just to, so number one, we don't know the correlates. But even if we did, it still wouldn't prove it's a brain disease. It could be learned, you know, just because there are brain changes doesn't mean something's a disease. It's, you know, because our brain changes with our environment and with learning that, you know. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think the model of disease is problematic in, 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 uh, in, in, in psychology, in psychiatry. Um, the idea of disease, you know, has to have a question mark around it. Maybe a little bit different when we put things together for, for example, Alzheimer's or dementia, there's probably a little bit more that can be said there, um, but you know, in your, you know, uh, obsessive compulsive, you know, um, you know, uh, anxieties, social phobias, depressions, you know, so on, uh, which is you know, the vast majority of what people are experiencing. Um, you know, I think I think I think people's condition probably uh, uh, is a stronger correlate than any of those because you know, if I were to make put someone in a uh, in total isolation. 
um, you know, would probably start feeling awful. Hence why we've got things like the Geneva Convention that doesn't allow for that in, in, as, as a form of torture. Um, there, there, there's lots of things that, you know, if I, if I lost all movement, um, good chance that I'll probably, um, you know, start feeling something um, because, yeah, lots of things change. But um, I do want to jump onto one final thing because I do recognise our time is, is slipping away. Um, you have mentioned uh, briefly, I think, that uh, you haven't tried uh, psychedelics yourself. Uh, how come? Is it something that you are thinking about that you want to go out and experience at some point? Talk, talk me through that. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'll tell you about an experience I did have which um, I, I did the uh, Mind Medicine Australia CPAT course, uh, which is a certificate in psychedelic assisted therapies. I did the first one. And as part of that, so they obviously can't give, you know, if, if it was legal, everyone would have it as part of therapy to understand how to become a psychedelic assisted therapy therapist. Obviously that's illegal at the, at the moment. Um, but what they did do is we all had a session of holotropic breath work. So, uh, I, I really, I was genuinely sceptical. <laughs> I wasn't sceptical. I just didn't think anything would happen. Like basically what you do is you, you hyperventilate yourself. Like you induce, you know, like a respiratory acidosis, like, like you, you get tetany in your hands and it's like um, you basically just sit there. So you lie there for 15 minutes and breathe very deeply, like more deeply and more and more quickly than you usually would. Um, and I must say, it was an extremely profound experience. Um, so sorry, I, what I didn't mention. So they use that as an analogue for psychedelic-assisted uh, therapy because it is a psych it, it's an experience of an altered state of consciousness that you can get through holotropic breathwork. So they use that as an analogue, something comparable, because they can't give us MDMA or psilocybin. Um, so I, I had this experience... And I've got it. So, so I've been in therapy now for about three years myself. I do weekly therapy. Um, and I think, that, and that, that helped me because I was sort of going into the breath work kind of thinking, well, okay, if it does anything, you know, maybe I'll, you know, focus on this, you know. Um, and I've got to say that it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. Um, and I was very, very, very connected to my emotional world, like much more, you know, a hundred times more than I am usually a thousand times more. I don't know. Um, it was just an extremely profound experience, extremely profound. Um, my, my thinking crazy head just disappeared and I was just in my imagination and my emotional world. And it was amazing. Um, so that experience is apparently similar to psychedelics um it's obviously not it's not the same but it's similar it's comparable um and to be honest that experience exhausted me for about i was like i'm not going to do anything like this again it was a, a very profound and amazing and quite healing experience for me but i was like okay that's enough for a year like i'm i've you know that's that's good for you know i'm good for now um <laughs> and, and that was about that was you know when was that that was between six months and a year ago um, I, I, I have thought about uh, taking psychedelics um, myself, but it's illegal um, and I'm part of APRA, so I'm not going to say anything else about that, but, uh, but I, have, I haven't taken, I haven't taken any, but, but I've certainly thought about it. 
um, in terms of just you know personal growth. I wonder yeah, whether it's a difficult thing—a difficult thing to talk about, for obviously. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I wonder whether there is even any concern from a, an, an opera uh, level. I mean, for example, um, I mean, obviously, I don't think any clinician would want to openly talk about those sorts of things. But I'm just wondering if you know, theoretically speaking, if I wanted to, um, whether I go out on a you know a Friday night and I take an illicit drug. Um, uh, uh, or not myself, you know, at home, you know, someone might smoke weed or something. Um, I think the real question from ARPA is, is does it impede my judgment and my capacity to do my work? Um, does it go out and um, affect uh, my work? But maybe also there is a question mark of, are you involved in illegal activity or something like that? So maybe that's where the question mark is. Oh, no, the, the thing, the issue for me is, you know, I'm not, and I and I feel see now now I'm paranoid. I feel like I need to make this clear. So I'm not. I would not. <laughs> I would not recommend. <laughs> I would not recommend people use psychedelics um, for therapeutic purposes um, outside of a controlled environment. And 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 you know and and part of me feels like I need to say that, but also. There are, you know, there can, people can have awful experiences. They really can. And it can be, you know, people can be damaged by using psychedelics when they're not done in an appropriate way and, and in, an, in, a, in a controlled way with, with someone that, you know, that you actually know what you're having, you know the dose, you're in a safe environment. Um, and so what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm, you know, trying to advance is the is the medical use of psychedelics, you know, in in safe environments. And I think that is important. I'll just say, say that. You know, I, I know it's a bit of a disclaimer, but I think it is important to say that people shouldn't go out and 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 try to do any sort of chemical assisted, you know, therapy by themselves or anything like that, because we we do need to look at the science behind this and make sure it's done properly, and. Not to mention, we haven't even touched on it today, but my understanding is there's there's actually a lot of work that happens before someone goes out and and uh, has one of these experiences, that there's multiple sessions um, in conversation about how they will approach the, 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 um, the experience, how someone's going to support them, you know, and even what they're trying to target. It's not just a matter of, you know, you, you eat a mushroom and, and um, you know, your life resolves and, and you're a happy person. That, 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 that's garbage and rubbish. That's, that, that's called, you know, um, uh, irresponsible drug use. You know, we're really looking at how can, you know, MDMA or psilocybin or, or, or other chemicals improve, facilitate long-term therapeutic um, uh, outcomes, positive therapeutic outcomes and, and, Work needs to be done because you know the moment this opens up on the market, people are going to go rogue. It's going to be it's going to go crazy. You know, there's going to be a lot of you know charlatans that can you know that'll pretend everything that they can do everything, and you know it needs to be regulated to do it like a lot of things exceptionally well. Um, you know, but you know people do illegal things or inappropriate things or foolish things all the time. It's neither here nor there. But um, you know, obviously neither are advocating. Uh, uh, for um, you know uh, uh, any any um, chemical assisted therapy until it's put in the market properly. Yeah, and, and thank you for raising that point. I actually had it here circled to to bring up if um, because yeah we haven't spoken and 
Yeah, we, we haven't spoken about how they actually work therapeutically, you know, practically, therapeutically. And, you know, people like Rick Doblin, who, you know, has been involved in this area for decades, he's very clear to say that it's the therapy that heals. It's not the medication. The medication just facilitates the therapy. And from what I've seen, I can really relate to that. Um, so if you do it, if it's done without therapy, it's not, you know, by that definition, it's not going to heal. It, it, you, the person might have an interesting experience. They might have a terrifying experience, but it's, it's not going to heal them from, from their issues. It has to be part of a therapeutic program, which, as you mentioned, involves a lot of, you know, pre-work. You know, what am I here for? What am I looking for? What are my issues? Well, what do I want to face in myself? You know, then, then the actual session and then the integration sessions, which also is a lot of work. It's about integrating what came up for me. You know, what, 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 what were my experiences? What do they mean for me? You know, yeah. So, so there's, it, it's built into a therapeutic paradigm and it is the therapy that helps people. It's just that the medication facilitates the therapy. Ellie, I'd love to do a deep dive in that. Um, maybe I can invite you back to the show at some point to, to you know, very specifically look at some of the protocols that are out, out there, the, the, the lead up. Um, I'm assuming there's a very significant lead up. You know, there's obviously that, that one experience. And then, as you say, you know, the integration is, is important. We know that therapy works. Um, you know, we, we, we know that it, it, it's better than, you know, uh, uh, you know sitting on the waiting list and, and, and doing nothing. We, we, so we know that being active and, and um, uh, involved in your life improves psychological well-being. Um, uh, and so this, this, this is very much a targeted um, approach, as, as all you know, therapy and medicine should be. So uh, you know, maybe we can get you back on the show at some point to, to take a little bit more of a deep dive and um, you know, talk about how, how that process uh, looks and, and, and your experiences in that space as well. I'd be happy to come back. Thanks, Nish. Yeah. Fantastic. Before we go, can I ask you about how people can get in contact if they want to find more about uh, you, maybe your work, um, uh, your clinic, uh, the, the, the research, Mind Medicine Australia as well. So how, how can people reach out if they're interested to follow up? Yeah, I mean, Mind Medicine Australia have their own website, so they don't need me. Um, but if you want to contact um, me, um, it's just Dr. Ellie Kotler at gmail.com, D-R-E-L-I-K-O-T-L-E-R, gmail.com. Um, and yeah, my Medicine Australia website is actually fantastic. It's a really good website. So if you're interested in psychedelics, that's a really good resource for just information. And yeah. And are you consulting at the moment as well? Uh, I, 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 I um, do, I work... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a clinician. I'm mainly a clinician, but I work with inpatient. So Malvern, the, the hospital I work at, Malvern Private Hospital, is an addiction hospital, and I mainly work with the inpatients and the outpatients in the program, um, and that takes up, you know, 90. Well, that takes up 120% of my time. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, once again, big, big, big thank you and appreciation um, to, 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 you know, give all of your time today. Uh, Definitely, I'd love to have you back. So hopefully we can achieve that as well. And um, yeah, look, look, look forward to finding out more, reading more. I'll, I'll probably have to 
pick your brain about good books to go to and, and good research to go to after this as well. Maybe we can link that after. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Thanks again, Ellie. Appreciate it. Thanks, Nash. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.